You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. Went for the handshake, forgot we can't do that anymore. Well, like Lee said, my name is Jacob. Um, I'm from Louisiana, so when I went back to uh, Louisiana for school, it was kind of a getting to go home for about a year and a half, two years, which was really nice. Um, This summer, we've been going over a sermon series called The Good News and talking about what the good news is, how we approach it, how it should affect us. So I'm going to continue in that kind of thread today and that theme today um, and look at uh, how I think Jesus kind of felt about the good news that he was bringing and how we should feel about that good news as well. So we're going to be reading today in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 16. And while you guys flip there, I'm going to give a quick shout out to mom and dad. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. They're watching in Louisiana. So I hope maybe if they figured it out, they might be watching the recording, but hey, mom, dad, anyway. Um, So while you guys turn there, I'm going to give you kind of the context of this story, and it's going to be one that once we start talking about it, you're going to go, oh yeah, I've I've heard of this story before. This is a really familiar story that um, if you really give the summary, you kind of give the entire story, but the context is Matthew 21 is, it begins with the triumphal entry. This is the chapter where Jesus returns to Jerusalem after kind of wandering around for a while and you know, kind of not really being welcomed, and he's got this gathering now, and he's got his followers, and people are now kind of like, hey, like this Jesus guy is pretty cool, I guess. So he rides into town, and everyone's like excited, and they're freaking out, and they've got their coats on the ground. And when they ask who he is, they say, blessed is the, he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when they say, who is this? They say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So at this point, Jesus is pretty well known. He's not like this obscure guy. He's not like this new teacher who everyone's trying to figure out who he is. This is Jesus. He's like wrapping it up. He's getting to the punchline. He comes to Jerusalem. He's like, this is it. I'm coming in full power. Here's what we're going to do. And this story is the first thing he does in Jerusalem as the, you know, recognized like great prophet of God. So we start in verse 12. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all of those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, And the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, as you have read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany and spent the night there. And that's it. That's the story. And again, it sounds pretty familiar. If you ask someone like, hey, do you remember that time Jesus overturned the money tables? And you were like, oh yeah, he like went and got mad and turned over the tables. And it's like, yeah, that, that's the story. Like the summary is the story. And, and a lot of people have tried to kind of like 
you know, really analyze, like, well, who were the money changers? And, well, you know, what was going on? And, like, try to read the characters into it. But I, I really think we're just kind of given these really bare details here because we're not really supposed to focus on, like, the actual occurrence of what he is, like, doing here, but really to see this in a larger context of what Jesus is kind of playing out here. And, and so when we, we see Jesus walk into the temple and flip over the tables, you know, he kind of gives this explanation, but we really still don't 100% know, like, well, what were they doing that was so bad? And when we read in the account in John, because this story is one of the few stories that makes it into all four gospel accounts, there's a, a quote or a, a psalm that the disciples remember when they see this happen. Psalm 69.9, it says, zeal for your house will consume me. And they remember this in John's account. They're like, ah, zeal for my father's house will consume me. That's why Jesus did it. And we're like, okay. It still doesn't really answer why he did it. Why would zeal for his house cause him to drive out these people? And so to really kind of understand, you know, why money changers in, in the temple would make Jesus mad, we need to kind of understand the point of the temple, the purpose of the temple. And, and the history of the temple is, is really interesting. And, and really the idea of the temple and the ideal of the temple is that it would be a place of connection. When you look through the Bible at places of connection, one of the first places we see is this place called Bethel. We see it in Genesis, and, and the idea is that it's this place where God kind of meets the earth. We, we first see it when Jacob has his dream, and he sees the stairway descending from heaven, and he says, oh, this is Bethel. This is the house of God. This is the place where the heavens and the earth meet. There's no obstruction. This is just straight up God, angels, like this is just, this is the point. This is the connected point between God and the earth. So that's a pretty big deal. And so we move through the Bible and, and we don't really get another place that kind of has this direct connection with God until, until we get to the Exodus. And in the Exodus, after the Israelites are brought out of Egypt, they are led by the direct presence of God in the form of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And this, this pillar that was God's presence would move and they would follow it and they go, all right, well, we're going this way because they didn't really know where they were going. But when it would stop, when it would say, hey, this is where we're going to hang out for a little bit, they had this tent structure called the tabernacle that they would you know, build and they would carry it around with them and then they'd set it up. And there was a, a room in the middle of the tabernacle and that is where God was. There was a, a physical spot on the earth where God was connected. And this place was really cool because it, it tells us that Moses was able to go into this place and talk to God as one does to a friend. But when he would come out, when he would we'd leave these talks with God, he would be like glowing from head to toe. Like in a cartoon, he'd be like... Ooh. And people were like, that's, you know, back then, and even now, if someone was glowing, you'd be like, that's really weird. You need to go see a doctor. You know, something's wrong with you. And so they made him put a veil over his face to hide his connection, to remove, to have a, a step of removal. And at one point, even in Exodus at Mount Sinai, God attempts to directly 
connect and communicate with the people of Israel, to talk to the whole nation all at once. And the people are terrified. And they say, whoa, 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 we don't want this direct connection. This is too scary. So we're, we want, Moses, you're going to be our one step removed. Okay, it's not the best situation, but God still, you know, he's just got one guy who's between him and the people. So then the Israelites go, they, they move into their new land, they conquer the territory, they drive out the people who live there, and they set up their kingdom, and they're like, all right, this is our kingdom. And there were some pretty rough stories along the way. It's not a very, if you want a really good read, just read the book of Joshua and Judges. They're wild. But they get to the land, and they have these judges who are ruling the country directly. God is directly involved in the ruling of the country, he, he has these judges that he talks to, and he helps them make decisions to make sure the people are doing the right thing. But eventually the people are like, no, 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 we don't, this is still too, this is still too close to God. We want another step removed. We need a king. That's who we need. So they add another step removal. They're like, we want a king instead. And once they have a king, the king is like, well, I mean, we should, we should have some place where God resides. So they build the temple. And this is kind of like the final iteration for centuries. And it's this huge structure. It takes, I think, like seven years to build. It's massive. It's, there's gold everywhere. And it's, it's just this elaborate, ornate, just massive thing. But, and it, and it was this place that, you know, if someone were to be like, hey, where is your God? You could like, you know, pin, drop them the pen of like, oh, it's, here's the address. It's, you know, 225 Bethlehem Street, you know, or Jerusalem Street would be in Jerusalem, not Bethlehem. But you could be like, it's over there. Like God's over there. He's in one of the rooms in that building on that street. Like that is where God is on the earth. That's where you can go and like you shouldn't, but you could walk in and be in the presence of God. You shouldn't because you die, but you could. He was literally there. That was, that was like the connecting point. It was this idea of connection where God was connected to the earth. He was tethered there. And sure, his spirit, you know, goes out and, you know, works through some of the prophets and the judges, but this was the place. And while it, in idea, in theory, this temple is a great place to connect. You can go and literally be like feet from God. It had some problems. Because again, this may be kind of the ultimate point where God is, but there were lots of steps between God and man still. In the very center of the temple, and the temple's kind of set up in like a, you know, concentric circles, I think that's the term, although it wasn't circular, it was rectangular. But in the very middle, in the very center of the temple, there's this place called the Holy of Holies. And this was the place God was. This was the address you could give someone and be like, here you go. Here's where God is. You know, take a left and then a right. It's right over there. But this, this place where God's presence was, was cut off by a huge veil, a huge curtain, I think it was, it was 30 feet high by 30 feet wide by 30 feet. It was just this giant, huge curtain. And some say it was like as thick as your hand. It was like four or five inches thick. It's just this robust, giant curtain. Some have said that like even a team of horses couldn't like drag this thing. It was just massive. 
So even though there's a place where God literally is in the world, it is the most isolated place that you could not get to. And once a year, one high priest could walk in, and he had to do all these rites, all these rituals. He had to make sure he was clean, make sure he had done all the purification stuff. And even then, the other priest, like, tied a rope around his ankle, just on the off chance he, like, forgot something and walked in and died. Because that happens sometimes. And I don't know how they figured it out after the first time, but somehow they figured out rope on the ankle is the way to do this. So this place where God is, is incredibly holy. It's incredibly set apart. It's incredibly removed from an average person's experience because in the same building that this Holy of Holies was, there was a little bit, you move out a little bit. There was the place where like the priests, the high priests, they would come and they would do their, their offerings and their sacrifices. And it was kind of like the, the office, like the church office, if you think of it. It's like, oh yeah, like that's where the, the people who work for the temple like hang out and do their job. And like if you're a regular person, maybe you could go in if you were invited to like take care of some business, but then you need to get out because this is like, this is the office. You know, this is where the priests are, no one else allowed. And then outside of this building where the offices were and the Holy of Holies was, there were these series of courts, kind of levels of access and the one right outside of the priest's office was the men's court. I know. And this is where the Jewish men could get as close as someone who wasn't a priest could. They could get to God. They could be like, God's in that building. I'm so close. Right there. He's in there. But this is as close as I can get. And then outside of that was the court of the women, and this is where the Jewish women could gather. And it was kind of like an interchange place. Like they could get close and then be like, here, like I need someone to take this to the next level so they can take it to the next level. And then outside of all of that, kind of around the, the edge of the temple structure, there was the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles is where Gentiles who weren't Jewish who weren't Israelites, they could still gather and they could either pay tribute to Yahweh or there were some like interesting ways you could kind of convert to Judaism back then. So if you were a convert, you were still a Gentile, so you still had to gather in the outer courts. But this is like where if you weren't Jewish, you had to hang out. And this is also where the booths were set up to buy and sell animals, to change money. So it was kind of crowded if you were a Gentile. You didn't really have a place of your own. You kind of had to share it. And, and when we think about it, you know, we obviously instantly, because Jesus flips the table over, give these people a bad rap. We kind of think, ah, oh, those money changers and those sellers of animals, you know, they, they didn't know what they were doing. They made a mistake. They shouldn't have been doing that. But honestly, like, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. I'm sure they, like, had a meeting at some point, and they're at their staff meeting, and they're sitting there, and they're like, man, how can we get more people to come to the temple? It's just, ah, oh, people just aren't really showing up. And someone's like, hey, what if instead of making people raise their own animal and, like, raise their own herd, because not everyone can afford a herd of animals that they can then get a flawless young animal to come sacrifice, what if we just, like, raise them ourselves and have them here so people can come buy them? Or if you have to travel really far because people were coming from all over the world to come to the temple or all over the country, it's like, 
What if you didn't have to bring the animal with you? What if you got here and we had some for you? That would make coming to the temple a little easier. And then because people were also coming from all around the world, they had money from all over the world. So they needed someone to be like, hey, look, I know you've got money from wherever, but in Israel, we take Israel money, or at a certain point, Roman money. So you need to have the right kind of money. So instead of sending people on this weird journey through town to go try and like find a money changer, have you ever like traveled internationally? Like not having money already converted when you get there is really tricky. And even when you get there, like they're not the most well-labeled, like here, come get your money, but you need to do that. So they, they kind of set this up as like, well, what if instead of sending people on this wild goose chase, we just have the money changers here? That kind of makes sense. But like a lot of things, what started out as a really good idea to try and make the temple a little more accessible, they tried to make it a little easier for people to get to God. But it started as kind of an innocent suggestion became corrupted. And so while the temple was meant to be a place of connection, in practice it had become a place of commerce. It had become a place where these money changers were set up, these animal sellers, and they're not there like also worshiping God and also like doing their duty. Like they didn't see it as like, oh yes, like we get to help people connect to God. They're like, cool, we just get to make a quick buck. Or probably a long buck, because raising animals takes a while, but you get it. And so, when these Gentiles would arrive, they would think, oh, I've, I've traveled so far. You know, but then they're like, nope, you only get to stay on the edge. And you look around the edge, and it's, it's like trying to, to like worship if we were in the middle of like a street market. Like, I guess you could do it, but it'd be really, really weird and really kind of awkward and maybe a little distracting. It's not the easiest thing to do. And even on a quiet day, you know, you've got people yelling, trying to change money. You've got animals going crazy. I'm sure they weren't just quietly standing there waiting to be sacrificed. But this was happening when Jesus walks into the temple. This is the lead up to Passover. This is the week before Passover one of the most important Jewish holidays. So it wasn't just a quiet Tuesday at the temple. There were hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from all over Israel, from all over the world, who were trying to get to the temple, who were trying to get their sacrifices ready to make sure their money was right. If you've ever seen, like, it doesn't happen so much anymore, and I, I guess because they've been doing it earlier and earlier, but do you remember when Black Friday was, like, the scariest thing ever? Because you would see those videos of just like stampedes of people like charging into a Walmart or like a Kmart or one of the other marts. People would just be like stampeding in and they'd just be, there'd be chaos. People would be like, you know, losing shoes and like breaking bones. And it was, every year it was like, you know, at least two people died on Black Friday this year. And it was like, my gosh. And so I imagine when Jesus walks into the temple on a Passover week, this is the chaos he is walking into. There's just people everywhere. Because the temple was big, but like hundreds of thousands of people are a lot of people. And he walks in and he sees this chaos. And in the midst of this chaos, 
I'm sure he, because this is what Jesus does, he spots the few, the Gentiles who are stuck in this chaos. They can't go to their designated worship place. They can't move in a little closer to a little quieter place. They can't move in and kind of say, oh man, that was crazy. Now I can worship. I'm over here. The chaos is behind me. I can worship. Now they were stuck in the middle of it. And so when Jesus sees this, this is when he flips the table. He's like, what the heck? These people are trying to worship, and you are so obsessed with making some money that you are, you are blocking these people. You're obstructing these people. You're making it so hard for them to connect. And I think that but this is kind of the point, like I said earlier. I think we're only given the barest details because Jesus isn't really necessarily upset at what is happening. I think he's upset at where it's happening. I think because they were doing this in a place where they were preventing other people from connecting with God, they were encumbering them, they were just making it difficult. This is why Jesus is mad. This is why Jesus is consumed with zeal for his father's house, because his father's house is a place of connection. It's where people should be able to come and get close to God, and they can't. So he drives them out. He's like, look, this is fine. Just do it out there, not in here. If you're going to do it, do it outside. It was a good idea, good idea, but you did it wrong, I think. And immediately after this, we again can kind of see how the, the attitude of the priests are because immediately after he drives them out, it says that the blind and the lame and the sick come and they get healed. And then the children are playing and they're saying, Hosanna, God is with us. And it takes some time to get there because again, the temple's a big place and it was really busy. So I'm sure like it took some time for the message to like make it all the way through to the priest and the priest to like make it all the way back out to where this was happening. So Jesus had set up like a little place where he was connecting with people as God. And it says that the priests are indignant when they see that this has happened. And this is like a weird word that like we just kind of think of as like, oh, how could you? Like a little annoyed, like, ah, this is, this is un, unbecoming of a, of a member of the temple. How could you do this, Jesus? But they wouldn't be really mad. But, but the words, the Greek words are these two words called agon and akthos. And I don't know if that's pronounced right, but those are the words. When you put them together, it's this idea that they were greatly grieved. They weren't just like a little upset. They were like, like just like crushed that Jesus would have the audacity to like, you know, cut off the cash supply and instead like heal people and let children play. Which is just, I mean, that says enough in itself that they were so concerned about the commerce of the temple that they had overlooked what it was really about, the connection. And so Jesus' zeal is for access. And we don't really know how the story ends. We just know that Jesus kind of throws an Old Testament quote at them and then leaves. We don't really know how 
how he left, if he stayed for a while. But when we look at this story, we see that Jesus' mission is to bring people to God and to bring God to people. That's what he wants. That is his, that is his goal. That is his purpose. And more than just Jesus's, because Jesus is God, this is God's desire that we see throughout the entire Bible. So I'm just going to do the super quickest like flyover of the Old Testament because I think it leads up to probably one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. And so this is just, this is what I think the gospel is about. And this is what I think Jesus cared about and what we should care about. It's this idea of connection because how does, how does the Bible start? God makes Adam and Eve and he walks with them directly. They're connected. They are literally like BFFs. They're like, God, same time, same place tomorrow. He's like, you know it. And they did it. Same time, same place every day. But then Adam and Eve sin. They get cut off. The garden is cut off. Man, not great. Then we go through a little bit further. We get to this guy named Abram. And God's like, Abram, my man, I'm going to use you. I'm going to connect with you. And I'm going to use you to bless the entire world. And spoiler alert, that blessing is to reconnect God to people. He's like, cool. So then we get the rest of Genesis, which is the story of Abram's family, which is, again, another messy, messy account of just craziness. Go read Genesis. It's a great book. Then we get to Exodus. Brings the people out. They go to Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. And we always have this, like, kind of negative connotation of the law, which I totally get. I understand. We're on this side of it. So, yeah, law bad. But at the time, the law was great because what the law did was God laid out in very clear very direct terms. Here is how you can connect to me. This is exactly what you can do. Oh, and if you make a mistake, here is exactly how you can fix that mistake. The Psalms call the law of the Lord sweeter than honey. I don't remember which one, but it's in there. So the law is this, this thing that God sets up, like, all right, please, like here, here's how you can connect with me. I want to connect with you. Here's how you can do it. And then, like I said earlier, we get to Judges, where God is directly ruling through the Judges, but the people want a king, and so we get relegated to prophets, where it's like, all right, well, I guess if you won't let me rule you directly, at least let me talk to you through the prophets. And then we have the temple, which is good, and then the rest of the Old Testament is mostly bad kings making mistakes, and mostly the people of Israel doing bad things, and eventually they go into exile, and then we get 400 years of silence from God. And like, that's kind of the Old Testament pretty quick. And it's like, it starts out great and gets pretty dark. But then after 400 years of silence, the next thing we hear from God is, oh, I am going to arrive on the earth as a person. I'm tired of these barriers. I'm just going to show up. And we get Jesus. And the life of Jesus is story after story of him telling off people who are trying to keep people from God. He's like, hey, you Pharisees, like, I'm trying to heal someone, and you're worried that he picked up his mat. Like, get over yourselves. And this all comes to a point and culminates in one of my favorite sections in the whole Bible, Matthew 27, 45 through 51. If you still have it open, just flip over two pages. If not, I'll read it real quick. <clears throat> Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, 
Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And this final act of Christ, as a a person before he's resurrected, his last thing he does is he yields his spirit And he removes the ultimate barrier between God and man, our sin. And the second that happens, the veil, the symbol of our sin, is ripped in two from top to bottom. The second he can, God bursts forth from the Holy of Holies to be with each and every one of us. This is God's desire. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some can count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is, this is God's desire, that barriers would be removed, that people would encounter him, that he would be able to come to us as much as we are able to come to him. So often we see the tearing of the veil as, ah, yes, now we can finally go to God. And I think we overlook that for God, this was finally the moment he could join together with us again. And this, this is a perfected rejoining. This isn't just, oh, we get to walk with him like, you know, oh, God, we're still on for Tuesday? No, he, he dwells within us now. This unity between God and man is perfected. And this is, this is the good news. So, what? What do we do with that? What do we do with that truth? What do we learn from Jesus flipping over some tables and then tearing away the veil through his sacrifice. Well, I think we should realize, one, that God is for everyone now. He is accessible to everyone. There's no temple set up anymore. There's no like, oh, if you want to see God, you got to go over there. God is available to anyone, to everyone. I once heard someone ask a question, if you could Give me an elevator pitch, a one-sentence reason why I should believe in your religion. What would it be? I'm sure a lot of us haven't thought of that before, and we might all have different answers, but I think for me the answer is that the gospel is for everyone. Or if I'm trying to really be a cool like elevator pitch, it's infinitely scalable. Which is that it doesn't matter if you are Jeff Bezos, the richest, most successful person who has probably ever lived, or if you are 
a tribesman who has never been contacted in deep in some forest somewhere, the gospel is for you. It doesn't matter if you were born growing up to, you know, growing up in church, born in the nursery and you've gone your whole life. It doesn't matter if you are a inmate on death row. It doesn't matter what political persuasion you have. Doesn't matter what. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Whatever excuse you can think of, of why the gospel might not be for you, there isn't. It is for you. And that was Jesus' message. That was his hope. That was his idea. That was what he cared about. That's what he was zealous for. And I think in the same way that he was zealous for the temple to be a place where people could connect to God, we should be zealous that the gospel should not have anything in its way from reaching people. I'm going to read just a little bit of the inspiration again because I just really think it's great, and I love it. So here we go. Just the last few verses. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. And I think that for us, the way we should approach the gospel is this. We should remove stumbling blocks for one another. We are not the gatekeepers who decide who gets to come to the gospel, who gets to come to church, who is worthy of prayer, who is not. We don't get to say, sorry, you voted for the wrong person. Too bad. Sorry, you like the wrong person. Too bad. Sorry, mm, you don't have the right credentials. Not good. We don't get to do that anymore. Too often we think that we have to change people before they can meet God. We think we have to make sure that they know, oh, if you become a believer, you're going to have to change a lot. We think it's our job to tell people and let people know what they need to do differently. But our responsibility is to remove barriers. We don't change people so that they can meet God. We help people meet God so that their lives can be changed. That is the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you cared about us enough to sacrifice your son so that you could be reunited with us. God, that you cared so much about connecting with us that you removed every obstacle in our way. And God, I just pray that as believers, as people, as followers of you, as carriers of the gospel, God, that we would do everything that we can, that we would strive full of zeal to remove the barriers 
that people are trying to put up between one another. God, I pray that you would work in our lives and help us understand that you are the one who does the work, that all we do is bring people to you. God, we thank you for your son and for his death on the cross. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.